You know what's true about this world? We like to celebrate flashy things. But what about courage? What about bravery? What about suffering? This is the place we give credit to what often goes unseen. This is the place we honor choosing grit. Ready? Uh, No. Hey, everybody. Here we are. I uh, definitely planned to share this episode with you earlier today. I was hoping to get up kind of early and, and polish it. But once again, when you have chronic migraine and your body is desiring to sleep and able to sleep, you let it. So here we are, 2 p.m. on this MLK day. and have a really unique and special episode to share with you all today, featuring the story of my friend, Erin McCoy. So a friend of mine and I reached out to Erin over the summer, right in the middle of all these issues surrounding race being brought to the surface in our country. I myself thought of reaching out to Erin because at that time, and still today, I just continue to feel like I really need to hear personal stories and experiences of racism within our country in order to continue to form myself and my own heart and how I can respond to this. As a black young adult Catholic, Erin graciously agreed to give a talk via Zoom for our local young adult Catholic community, which is what I'm sharing with you today. So specific aspects of this episode are very geared towards a Catholic audience. Erin is also a theologian with his master's in theology. So essentially, this talk is an integration of his personal experiences with racism, often within the church itself as well as within Milwaukee. While he's been living here, on top of a powerful conversion experience he had that was really healing to him, all melded together with his knowledge of theology, his take on race in general, and how some ways he thinks we should be responding to this. So even if you're not Catholic, I'm biased, but I really think his story, his perspective is worth hearing. One thing Aaron brings up a few times that have been really pivotal for me in terms of my own Reflection on this issue is to look at our history within the church itself and within America and really start asking ourselves, why is it that someone like Aaron ended up being the only black man or boy in so many different church communities? Why is it that in some of his experiences with the cops, they reacted so strongly to him being pulled over? What are the underlying issues that led us to end up with this being the case. One thing you'll hear Aaron defend is the fact that regardless of where we are now, our country has racist roots. We all know that, right? And social worker, therapist perspective chiming in here, but when discrimination occurs, there's trauma that occurs with that, right? And generational trauma is a real thing. So what have we and what haven't we done in our history to address that and what can we do moving forward to foster healing. As you hear Aaron's story, it will become very clear to you that he is a person of grit. He, despite having these experiences that he shared, he didn't let this hold him back from pursuing starting a family, from pursuing his master's degree. Uh, Of course, there are issues of class in there as well that Aaron brings up, but it's clear that he hasn't given into the fact that he is less than in any way, despite experiences he has had that could have easily made him think that. 
that. With that, I'm going to let you hear from Aaron himself, who is also joined by his son, son Oscar, who you'll hear in this episode a few times, and then also his wife, Kathleen, was present with us as well. Enjoy. So Carrie already opened us in prayer, but I think it's really important to, um, uh, to really consider invoking the Holy Spirit as we begin this work. Um, this work of sharing stories, this work of listening to stories, and this work of um, sort of considering uh, what's happening in the world. Um, so I actually found um, a prayer from uh, someone that I'll reference a little bit later on. Uh, some of you might be familiar with Father Brian Massingale. Um, so he actually has a, an invocation to the Holy Spirit um, that I thought was really pertinent to um, what I want to talk about today. And it's this. <clears throat> Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. Come, Holy Spirit, breathe into us a fiery passion for justice, especially for those who have the breath of life crushed from them. Amen. And so as we begin, um, I am a black man. I'm also a Catholic and these two things go hand in hand. Um, and uh, whenever anything happens in the news uh, related to, uh, to uh, racial justice, I always look to see what the Pope is saying or what the USCCB is saying, uh, just to kind of get some guidance. And when George Floyd was killed, um, Pope Francis actually had a statement that came out and he had this quote that um, really resonated with me. Uh, we cannot tolerate or turn a blind eye to racism and exclusion in any form yet claim to defend the sacredness of every human life. Um, and I think that's especially uh, pertinent for uh, US Catholics who uh, really tout uh, issues of uh, pro-life. And I think that um, when we look at people who are being killed, um, that's, a, that's an issue of life too. And so as we think about uh, racism, uh, that a, that's a, is a pro-life issue. And um, one thing that I, I also think of uh, when I think about these issues of, uh, yeah, buddy, daddy's trying to do a good job. <laughs> um, when, uh, when I think about these issues too, I'm also reminded, I have a degree in, um, in theology, so I have to geek out a little bit about theology for a second. And that makes me think about the incarnation. Uh, and so, and the incarnation is something that uh, obviously God became flesh, and we celebrate that um, in a numerous ways throughout the liturgical year. We celebrate it at Mass. Um, but I think that that's something really important to consider is that um, God became man uh, in Jesus. And that means that bodies matter. Uh, it also means that God became a man in a particular place. Uh, in a particular time. So God has an ethnicity. Uh, God, in a sense, while race is man-made, God has a race, if you really want to think about it. So the body matters, ethnicity matters, race matters. Um, and I think as we move forward in thinking about this, um, it's not something that's abstract. It's something that is really tied to our theology and the things that we think about. Um, and so, in thinking about this, and especially in thinking about Oscar, um, the whole conversation about Black Lives Matter um, becomes something kind of different entirely uh, in saying that Black bodies matter um, and that uh, 
to think that that is a radical statement. I think um, it's a radical statement in that uh, it obviously matters to God, um, but it doesn't seem like it's as radical of a, of a statement when you really think about what that means for a bunch of people in the, in the US. Um, so I'm not, I don't really wanna get into a place where this becomes, um, where this becomes political. And I, I know that uh, this, I haven't even started talking about my own story yet, but I have to couch my own story into the wider story of being a black American uh, in this country, that I have to start there. Um, and thinking about issues of racism that I've experienced in my own life, that I've experienced uh, in the church, um, I want to be able to frame um, my story within that. So I was born uh, in California and I was raised uh, in a non-denominational church. Um, but at that church, I was really one of the only uh, black kids there. Um, and that uh, was hard, uh, primarily because I experienced a lot of um, things that I didn't realize were weird until I got older. Uh, so I was really into musical theater when I was a kid. I did a lot of plays, a lot of singing. So I was always in the church uh, performances um, and always in the church plays. Uh, but from the time that I was young till I got older, I did these for years, um, the only parts that I would ever get would be supporting roles. So um, I would be the janitor who was sweeping and giving um, kind of fanciful advice to the, to the kids who were the white kids who had to leave. Um, there was another uh, play that I was in when I was, uh, I was uh, a, what was I? I was a, was in a baseball game, um, but I was just an umpire who happened to have all the wisdom. Um, and just other little instances like this. I also wasn't, um, uh, I always really wanted to learn about uh, the Bible and really learn about, uh, you know, um, what, uh, what the readings were about. And I remember, uh, that uh, whenever we would go to our young adult group, all the other kids would talk about uh, sort of what they did over the weekend and um, they wouldn't want to talk about scripture. They wouldn't want to talk about um, Jesus. They didn't want to talk about any of these things. They said some pretty harsh things um, about the color of my skin and about uh, made fun of me for my hair, things like that. Um, all of this happened in the context of the uh, uh, Bible study. Um, so this, uh, these weird experiences, um, both enabled by adults and um, by the teenagers that led us um, sort of stuck with me from a very early age. Um, and granted, this wasn't, I wasn't in the Catholic church yet, but I don't think that I've had uh, conversations with folks. And I think that this is pretty common just in the U.S. when you grow up as sort of the only black kid um, in a majority white church. Um, so it wasn't until I got to high school that I actually met my first Catholic and uh, her name was Emma. Uh, and we started dating my senior year of high school. Um, and as we were dating, uh, we were getting ready to go off to college um, and she wanted me to come to her church and get a blessing from her priest. I ended up going to uh, mass with her and I remember being really confused because everyone was saying the same thing at the same time, sitting down, standing up at the same time. I didn't know what they were doing. Um, one thing that I did realize in that mass that was really sort of eerie to me, but stuck with me for a really long time was um, the Eucharist. Uh, so I remember going through um, the, the consecration and just something about the Eucharist was really appealing to me in that moment. I couldn't really put words to it. Um, 
but I think the best way I could describe it was I felt like I had found uh, something that felt like home, something that felt really familiar. Um, and that's not an experience that I had had in any of the churches I went to growing up. I was very alienating and lonely. So a very distinctly different feeling. Um, and uh, I went out to college and uh, had some other experiences when um, other um, Protestant groups um, in which I was sort of uh, singled out for being black and asked to go to particular Bible studies because I was black or asked to, um, uh, to worship in a particular way or show people how to worship in a particular way because I was black. Um, and uh, growing up in a predominantly white area, I didn't really know what they were talking about when they were asking me to do different things. Um, but again, it's just sort of this, uh, this weird tension between religion and race that has been there my whole life. And about midway through college, after a lot of these experiences, I just got really fed up with it. And I decided I didn't want to be, uh, have anything to do with Christianity because um, it just felt really racist to me. Uh, and so I spent, uh, once I made that decision, the next two weeks in the most intense prayer of my life, and I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but I was so mad at God that I talked to him what I felt like every minute of every day, um, just telling him how angry I was. And uh, during that time, after that two weeks, I realized, okay, obviously I still believe in God, but I don't know about this Christianity thing, so I got to figure something out. So uh, I ended up doing a lot of research on uh, Islam, a lot of research on Buddhism, um, and spent a number of months sort of just touring different religious communities and trying to really get a sense of what I felt like was for me. Um, and for a variety of different reasons, um, nothing really stuck. And I ended up uh, realizing that, okay, on some level, I'm Christian, but I don't know what that means. I don't know where I belong. Um, so I'm just going to kind of play this loose until I figure something out. Uh, and this continued until I graduated from undergrad. And um, after that, I ended up doing a program called Teach for America. Uh, and I moved out to New York and uh, started teaching. And uh, that, uh, for anyone who's uh, knows any teachers, you know, that first year of teaching, especially when you're not trained in it, uh, can be very, very stressful. <laughs> um, so I was going through a very stressful time living in New York. And uh, I called up my old friend, Emma, um, just to talk um, and was telling her about how stressed out I was and how hard things were. And uh, she asked if I was going to church. And I said, oh, no, like I read my Bible from time to time, but I'm not going to church. Uh, I don't really know where I would go. And she recommended that I go to uh, a church that uh, she thought I would like that was, and granted, she was living in Ohio at the time, so she didn't know anything about New York, but clearly she had done some research for me because um, she recommended a church in Midtown Manhattan that she thought I would like. Um, and so um, I ended up uh, begrudgingly deciding, okay, I'll go to this church, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go and sit in the back uh, and just be there just to appease you. So I ended up going to mass and that same feeling of uh, that familiar feeling, that same feeling of home that I felt when I saw the Eucharist the first time years before, uh, I felt that same experience um, at this mass. Uh, and so it was um, kind of like a balm for all the stress that I was feeling. Um, I felt peace for the first time in a long time. Uh, so I kept going back and I always sat in the back of the church um, and uh, I would go every Sunday just sitting in the back 
not doing the standing up and sitting down, not saying anything, but just being there. Um, and eventually uh, the young adult group, uh, a friend of mine, Greg came and noticed me and he said, hey, I know you've been coming here for a while, um, what's up? And I told him I wasn't interested in anything that they were doing, I just wanted to kind of be there and be at peace and I was fine with that. Uh, and he said, okay, he's like, well, you know, we're gonna go out to eat if you wanna come out to eat, you know, we can do that. And I was very aware of all of the, Christian tricks to get new people to come into the community. And so I didn't, uh, I resisted for a very, very long time. Um, but eventually they wore me down uh, and I ended up hanging out with them. And they became a super great group uh, of people for me to hang out with. Um, and uh, I had a lot of questions, a lot of questions about the faith, a lot of questions about what it meant to be Catholic. Uh, and they were like, well, you should think about doing RCIA. Um, I was like, I don't know what this is. And he said, oh, it's right of, uh, was it Christian initiation for adults? I always get to see in the eye confused. But uh, that sounded like a cult to me. So I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, I was very scared at that point. Uh, but they encouraged me that it's, you just come ask your questions. You'll learn. There's no commitment. You don't have to do anything. I said, okay. Uh, so I went, asked all my questions, and for every question that I had, um, the church had an answer. Somebody at some point in the history of the church was able to answer the question that I had, or at least, even if I didn't agree with it, there was room for me to argue, and there was room for me to have doubt, and there was room for me to um, to believe the things that mattered, to believe the things that I felt. But, uh, there's a, I have a picture of my, the moment of my baptism, uh, and I remember it very vividly. Um, as soon as that water touched my head, I just fell out in tears, just sobbing, 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 sobbing. Um, and it just was felt like all of the pain, all of the tension, all of the broken hearts that I had felt, um, all of that just came rushing out. And I felt like God just met me there. Um, so that was a really beautiful moment. Um, and uh, something that uh, I was really excited about, as you can see in this picture, that was right afterwards. So. I was very excited to be there, um, excited to become Catholic. And I think for me, what stands out as I think about this is really, um, it's the body of Christ that compelled me um, to join the church, um, both the literal Eucharist and also the, um, the, the body of Christ, the members of Christ, the, his people coming to me and inviting me in and welcoming me uh, and showing me God's love in the flesh, um, in their, through their bodies. Um, and that to me uh, meant the world because um, I was in a very vulnerable and lonely place at that time in my life and um, I really needed. So I think that that um, with that, yeah, so continuing that story. So I uh, became Catholic, lived in New York for a while, um, did a bunch of odd jobs after teaching and eventually decided I wanted to get a degree in theology. And so I moved uh, to Milwaukee to go to Marquette because uh, I wanted to live in every major section of the U.S. as I could, except for the South. I didn't want to live in the South, and I lived everywhere but the Midwest, so I decided to come out to Marquette. Um, and when I got here, the, my first year in Milwaukee, I had some of my most intense experiences with uh, uh, run-ins with the police. Um, and so the one that stands out um, particularly is one night, um, it was in winter, I was driving with a friend of mine um, very late at night, probably like three in the morning, uh, and uh, was driving her home. And my lights on my car um, were on the fritz. So um, they were kind of going on and off at the time. 
um, and I got pulled over. Uh, and uh, when I was uh, when I was a kid, my parents always told me, anytime the police pull you over, you know, you have to, you know, put your hands on the wheel, put your wallet out, just be just be ready to be com totally compliant. Um, and so uh, I did all of that. I had my wallet out, hands on the steering wheel, just waiting. Uh, and my friend, who happened to be a white woman in the car, um, uh, was ready for a fight. Uh, and I told her, I said, you know, you got to calm down. <laughs> like, you can't uh, yell and scream and be upset. Uh, they haven't done anything yet. Nothing's happened. Uh, let's just see what this is about. So please come, tap on the window. I roll down the window. Um, they uh, shine the lights right in our eyes uh, and ask, uh, you know, if we've been drinking tonight. Uh, I said, no, sir, haven't been drinking tonight. Uh, looks at me, looks at my friend, um, asks us to get out of the car. Um, so I get out of the car. There's just that police officer squad car behind me, uh, shining his lights. Um, they have the floodlights that they put out, um, shining floodlights on the, onto my car. Uh, and he starts running me through sobriety tests. Um, and uh, it's winter, three in the morning in winter, so it was very cold outside. I don't have gloves, didn't have my, uh, my jacket on. Um, starts running me through different sobriety tests. So, you know, stand on your leg, uh, walk a straight line, say the alphabet backwards, um, all of these things. And as I'm doing this, my friend is in the car and she's uh, yelling at them, at the police saying, you know, he, he hasn't been drinking. He told you he hasn't been drinking. Why did you pull him over? Um, you know, this uh, doesn't make any sense. And I kept saying, Stephanie, uh, it's okay. Like, let's just be cool and let's just be calm. Um, and I noticed that as I was running through these sobriety tests, after about 20 minutes of these tests, um, having to redo them and redo them and redo them, um, more squad cars started coming. Uh, and so by the final count, after about probably 30 minutes, there were uh, four cars and two police vans, all with their floodlights shining on, uh, on me doing the sobriety test. Um, and Stephanie's still in the car watching this happen. And uh, as, I, as I looked closer and stopped, kind of stopped to realizing how many cars were there, I noticed that there were about five officers that were standing um, next to their cars with their hands on their guns, um, unclipped. Um, just standing there watching. Um, and at that point, I started to get a little nervous. Um, and I, I asked them, uh, I said, I've been doing sobriety tests for about 30 minutes. I said, you know, are you, are you taking me in? Or what are you doing? I haven't been drinking. I don't, I don't understand why I still have to do this. Um, and at that point, they decided to administer a breathalyzer test. Um, and uh, they had a, uh, they had asked me to uh, sort of just stand with my hands behind my head uh, in the cold. So just standing here like this, hands behind my head, watching them, more police cars there, um, and waiting for the results of this breathalyzer test. Uh, I asked if I could put my hands in my pockets. They said, don't move. Um, I said, it's really cold. Do you, can I go back in my car to wait? They said, no. Um, and eventually um, the breathalyzer test came back hadn't been drinking, so nothing registered. Um, and so the cars, uh, I asked if there's anything else that they needed me to do. And they said, well, we could take you down to the station. 
but they looked at my friend in the car and they said, but I think, you know, uh, if, if you just, uh, just get home safe and maybe we won't have to do that, do you think you can do that? Uh, yeah, I think I can. And so then the police disperse, I get to go uh, take my friend home and then I go home. Um, so when I tell that story uh, and I think about that story, I hear at the same time the stories of other folks who have run-ins with the police and how differently they end up. Um, and so I just feel really lucky that um, it didn't go sideways, that we were able to sort of keep our cool and not, um, not escalate things. Um, but the fact that, uh, you know, I was pulled over for lights, had to run through sobriety tests and was only saved because I had a white woman in my car. Um, that's the only reason I was able to go, um, without any, without anything escalating. Um, it was really scary and it's something that still kind of is scary to think about. Um, so yeah, that, um, that experience, um, while not explicitly obviously tied to, um, tied to my faith or anything like that, is something that, um, something that I have a lot of questions about and something that I, uh, when I think about justice, when I think about um, dignity of people, um, all these things that come up when we think about our faith, um, I have to ask why things like that happen. Um, and I have to think, uh, how can we stop them from happening? Um, and so one question that uh, comes up a lot, um, not only for me, but um, I think for a lot of people these days, uh, is thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and thinking about trying to ask these questions and answer these questions um, is why this movement exists, right? Um, so uh, I actually got into an Instagram argument <laughs> with somebody who was saying that, um, Catholics shouldn't support Black Lives Matter at all um, because the movement is um, antithetical to what Catholics believe. Um, and so that made me have some questions um, because first off, uh, the issue was uh, uh, arguing that Black Lives Matter <laughs> is just something that um, doesn't feel like it has to be argued, but it does even in spaces of faith. Um, so one thing that I think is really important and I was able to thankfully actually engage in a really fruitful dialogue um, over social media, which doesn't happen very often. Um, and uh, uh, be able to have a conversation about uh, one major thing that I think is important is distinguishing between the movement Black Lives Matter um, is distinguishing between the organization Black Lives Matter. Um, so the organization Black Lives Matter, I think uh, it's Black Lives Matter uh, global organization is what they call themselves now. Um, their main movement is um, to be able to stop things uh, like police shootings or hate crimes against black people um, all over the world um, because racism is not just an American thing. Um, Anti-blackness exists all over the world. Um, and so uh, part of that, that's part of their mission. Uh, and another part of their mission is really sort of centering um, the most oppressed, the most vulnerable. Uh, and for them, that happens to be um, trans folks as well as uh, LGBTQ folks. So I did a little bit more research and uh, the Black Lives Matter, the organization does, they talk about wanting to sort of um, having a different, taking a different view of the family 
in thinking about um, sort of how do we have communities sort of help raise our children and help to decentralize family. So obviously those are things that um, the Catholic Church has very different teachings about. Um, uh, but I think it's really important to say that all of those statements that are coming out from the Black Lives Matter organization is very different from the people that are in the streets protesting for Black Lives Matter um, and peaceful protest. Um, this movement has sort of taken on a life of its own. Um, and the movement itself is really just saying that uh, Black lives, Black bodies uh, matter. They're, that there should be equality in the sense of um, folks like Jacob Blake um, who are in a confrontation with police, there should be non-lethal methods to be able to, uh, to end that as opposed to being shot seven times in the back. Um, and so I think that uh, for these protests that are happening, um, it's my personal opinion that uh, that's a very different thing from uh, supporting the organization. So um, I've had a lot of conversations with folks and said, you know, you can say Black Lives Matter um, without supporting, uh, if you don't support the organization, you don't have to support the organization, but saying that Black Lives Matter um, is just a, a moral statement. It's not, an, uh, it's not a political issue. Um, I think another thing that uh, comes up with these protests um, and has come up in um, our own life in terms of wanting to be able to um, let us teach Oscar that, you know, uh, as a little black boy that his life matters and that, um, you know, teaching him to grow up in this world. Um, there's sort of a, a fear um, that comes out uh, in terms of thinking about protests and riots, right? Um, so there are peaceful protests that happen and it gets dark past the curfew and then riots happen. Um, and people will say that those, um, those protests too are not that are those riots per se are not necessarily in the same spirit. Again, I'm not trying to get political on you, but I think that there's sort of a fear that comes out of um, when it comes to black anger uh, about the injustices that have been happening. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm condoning violence or anything of that, I don't. Um, but I am saying that uh, when you have a history of oppression and a history of, um, a history of people who have experiences like I've shared, both in the church, in the streets, uh, in their community, um, anger is bound to be there. Um, and that anger uh, gets taken out in different ways. I'm thankful for all of the ways that um, we're able to go to different marches or go to different sit-ins or stand-ins or peaceful, peaceful observations. Um, but I think we really need to take a step back and consider that um, people are angry uh, and people have a right to be angry um, because this is an issue that, uh, that, uh, that we, have, we need to be angry about. So, I want to talk a little bit um, briefly about Father Brian Massingale. This is a picture of him. Um, and this is a quote from him. He says, social life is made by human beings. The society we live in is the outcome of human choices and decisions. This means that human beings can change things. What humans break, divide, and separate, we can heal with God's help, also heal, unite, and restore. Um, and this quote comes from the end of his book, Racial Justice in the Catholic Church, um, which is a really good book that I'd highly recommend. Um, but uh, more than just this, uh, and his hope that he has that human beings can change things, um, 
Father Brian Massingale has uh, written a few articles that have been really good and has a few videos that are really good about what's been going on lately in our society. Um, specifically talking about uh, the issue of white privilege and issues of um, uh, white supremacy that happen in our society. Uh, and I think one thing that um, is important, and I'll get to this a little uh, in a, like a slide or two, as I think it's really important that um, not only, uh, not specifically, uh, well, white Catholics, all Catholics, but specifically white Catholics, really need to consider um, as they're looking at what's happening to their, uh, their brothers and sisters that are sort of having to experience these things on a daily basis. This issue of racism, I believe, is um, something that uh, Pope Francis says we need to deal with, um, something that, um, uh, that, our, that black people are crying out to be dealt with, um, and we can do that. And I think Brian Maskell sort of gives some um, lead way on how to do that um, and some hope here. Another good figure I think to consider is um, James Cone, uh, who wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree that I think is a really, really good book um, that I'd highly recommend talking about the uh, history of racism in this country and um, also talking about the, uh, uh, the call of Christians to sort of answer and to respond to racism. This is a quote from him that I really like. He says, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, Christians have no choice but to join the movement of liberation on the side of the poor, fighting against the structures of injustice. Faith in Jesus Christ, therefore, is not only an affirmation that we utter in Sunday worship and in other church gatherings. Faith is a commitment, a deeply felt experience of being called by the Spirit of Christ to bear witness to God's coming liberation by fighting for the freedom of the poor now. And I think that uh, I think that this is something. Uh, while James Cone himself was a, was a Methodist, I think that we Catholics can sort of take up that same call. And as I've talked about a lot today, I think it can kind of, especially in this November election, uh, on everybody's minds, um, we can wonder if um, stories like I've shared my own story, um, as I've been told before, it's just a, sort of a, a political. Uh, political brainwashing it's been called before. Um, so I guess really what I, what I wanna say here is that I don't think that this is necessarily a political issue. I really think it's a moral issue. And I think it's a Catholic issue. And I think it's something that's important that we Catholics sort of address um, and that we can address and that our church in the riches of its faith um, and in its, um, uh, in its witness throughout history is able to really um, offer us the opportunity to step out, say that Black Lives Matter, and claim that as a, uh, as a radical stance rooted in our faith, rooted in the incarnation. So one of the things that I would like to do is to leave sort of with some things that uh, can be done, some things that you can do, um, that I think you can do, things that I try to do myself. Um, the first thing is educate yourself about issues of racism issues of um, uh, social injustice and to really consider sort of where you're educating yourself from and who you're getting your information from and this kind of leads to the next one listen more than you talk um, this is something i learned i actually got to take a class with father brian massingale um, back in my master's degree and one thing that he always encouraged is using um, whenever you want to learn about the issue an issue you read sources or talk to people that 
have had those experiences um, to be able to hear their stories and hear what they have to say. So I think that's really important. The next thing I'd say is important is to pray for conversion. I think one thing that's uh, really important to keep in mind is that we all sin and we all have uh, blind spots. We all have things that we, we don't know a lot about. We all have things that we need to learn more about. Um, and so in prayer, God comes to meet us where we're at um, and uh, can really help us to be able to see where we need to grow, where we need to learn. And so I don't think that any of this can be done apart from prayer. The next thing I would say is to stay present. And what I mean by that is to, uh, is to uh, be able to be in the moment and recognize um, sort of uh, what's happening in the moment. Uh, and this kind of gets to the next thing, to live what you've learned. So as you go about learning and sort of seeing issues of racial injustice and sort of hearing stories, hearing my story, um, as, you, as you're hearing these things, I think it's important to stay present and recognize and see these things happening around you. Another thing, I have two master's degrees, so I can't leave without telling you to read something. Um, so I recommended two books. Uh, I already mentioned them, Racial Justice in the Catholic Church by Father Brian Massingale. The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. Um, if uh, you want to, you're really excited and you want to do something tonight, there are two articles here. Um, one is by Father Brian Massingale. Um, he wrote it, it's called The Assumption of White Privilege and What We Can Do About It. Um, it's basically, hopefully this presentation, but a lot better. <laughs> uh, I think that he's, uh, he's, got a he's got a really solid pulse on, um, on uh, what we can do to make some change. And that's in the National Catholic Reporter. Um, Pope Francis uh, released a statement about the death of George Floyd. Uh, Gerard O'Connell in America Magazine wrote a write-up about that. Um, so I think that's also another um, quick and easy thing to read to sort of get your mind primed for some of these issues that are happening. And that brings me to this picture, which is thank you for me and my family um, for letting us do this from home and for listening and uh, for uh, being able to suffer through Oscar's excited <laughs> grunts and groans. Um, so that's all I've got. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Aaron. I definitely have questions, but do, do you guys have anything? Um, yeah, I, I, I guess a, a question. I, I mean, a lot, a lot of comments were, were coming through my head. A question I was curious about, you, you were talking about how um, you wanted to live in every part of the country and then, but, but didn't want to live in the South. Was that due to the history of racism in the South, um, and and if so, like moving to Milwaukee, how did Milwaukee meet kind of your expectations of what racism was going to be like in Milwaukee? I guess. Yeah, um, that's a good question. So yeah, a big reason why I didn't want to go to the South. Um, so I was raised in California. I have a lot of family history in the South. So my grandfather is from Mississippi. Um, my aunt um, lives in Baton Rouge. Um, so my my roots are there. Um, but I grew up hearing that it was just the uh, racist is all get out. <laughs> and so um, I kind of had this taste in my mouth that um, I, I didn't want to experience that uh, in a really, um, I didn't want to experience that if I didn't have to. Um, of course, I married a Southerner. So I think uh, by default, uh, I sort of uh, checked that box. <laughs> but um, in terms of moving to Milwaukee, I will say that um, you know, when I, I told my dad that I was moving here and he's like, I'm pretty sure that's like at the top of the list for the most segregated place in the country. And he's like, are you going to be okay? Um, he's like, yeah, I'm up for an adventure. Like, it can't be that bad. Um, 
but as getting here and sort of living um, in the midst of like the segregation, I think um, is, is, uh, is hard. And I think um, one thing that I would say, um, I don't know if this will exactly answer your question, but I think it's an, uh, an interesting nuance to consider is um, mixed in with all of this is the issue of class. Um, so you have um, someone like me who was raised in the suburbs. Um, I had my parents uh, weren't rich, but we had enough. Um, and I was raised around middle class people. So um, that's sort of my whole milieu, so to speak. Coming out to Milwaukee, um, a lot of the black folks that I interact with here um, were not raised in middle class, they're raised in lower class. Uh, and so um, there's sort of a, not that I don't get along with them, but we have different life experiences. I mean, I come in with a lot of privilege too because of my class, right? So like I, I said, I had two master's degrees. I, you know, I, I was able to buy a car when I got here. You know, I'm able to sort of pick and choose where I wanna live in the city. Um, so that has sort of, um, that reality has sort of changed my experience of Milwaukee because I live in River West um, and they're, you know, a block away from Harambe, um, which uh, when we were dating, Kathleen lived in Harambe and that was a totally different experience from just hopping over Holton uh, over here. So my experience in this city um, is more east of Holton, as opposed to it is west of Holton, which is a radically different experience. One thing that I like to hear, um, yeah, just where you're at in terms of remembering those stories, like the story you shared while you were at Marquette, and I know you said that you have a lot of other stories like that um, while you are at Marquette, while you were in Milwaukee, and considering like how scared that made you feel, and the aftermath of that, what is it like for you now to be seeing all of these um, protest witnesses? Do you feel like there is genuine good that you're experiencing from that? That's a good question. Yeah, um, that's a good question. So um, I used to be the kind of person, um, before I got married and had Oscar, um, I was the kind of person who, um, like when Philando Castile got shot and killed, I was driving through Minneapolis, um, driving to Los Angeles from Milwaukee. And I remember I was in my car and I was bawling like a baby. And I was praying that, uh, you know, if the cops pulled me over, that if that happened to me, that that would, I could change things. I kind of wanted to be a martyr in that way. Um, and so, but uh, Kathleen obviously doesn't want me to do that. And um, I wouldn't be able to be around for Oscar if that happened. So my tune has changed, um, but that feeling is still in me. So um, we haven't really been able to go to many protests just because you know we wanna keep him safe from the virus and things like that. But um, seeing the protests and seeing um, the people out in the streets and hearing of just about people um, openly saying um, Black Lives Matter and openly saying that um, this is an issue that they wanna address is very heartening. Uh, I'm encouraged by this moment. Um, I just hope that the moment doesn't pass. Uh, and I hope that it doesn't take more Black people dying for the moment to continue. I think because of the coronavirus and people being able to um, sort of really having to sort of confront more of these things because they're at home, because, you know, the news is like something that we have to confront a little bit more than we had to before. You could go out and do something. You could get away. But you can't really get away now. Um, and so I, uh, I'm hopeful that sort of the, this weird time will lead to some um, 
some change. Um, but they're still sort of a fit in my stomach um, every time I read the news because I'm afraid that there will be another one. Obviously, like, um, part of the goodness of, like, protesting is, like, just acknowledging what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, just p making people aware. And people are talking about, like, wanting change to happen. And I guess, for me, that's so, like, general and vague, like, yeah. you know, like I went to a peaceful march and and that was good and beautiful I I just in my mind I'm like I don't know what kind of changes mm -hmm. like people's hearts need to to be in the right place like as a cop you need to like not do what cops have been doing you know not yeah. all cops at all by any means um yeah. versus like oh there's these laws in place that are like saying Blacks have to drink at these water fountains. You know, that's very clear. Like, we bosh that and then we enforce that. Like, you know, yeah. is there something tangible, a, a result that might satisfy? Is that possible? Yeah, I think generally speaking, um, we have to start by believing. Um, we have to start by believing, and this is uh, something that is contested, but I, I urge you to. Uh, to believe it, <laughs> is that uh, systemic racism is real. So um, there are structures in place that um, have, over the course of history, um, made it so that um, Blacks and other minorities are in the situation that they're in now, right? And so, um, but I think coming at this from a very Catholic perspective, um, I think our Catholic social teaching points us in a very good direction um, in terms of saying that um, Believing in the dignity of every human person, um, believing in having solidarity with the poor and the oppressed. Um, so again, that's a little bit nebulous, but I guess what I'm saying is on that individual level, I think that we need to really look at the privileges that we have um, and see how is that showing up in my life and how can in my life and the decisions that I make and the people that I vote for um, in the organizations that I support how can I always make sure I'm aligning myself on the side of the oppressed? A lot to chew on. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. You know, I'm thankful that, uh, that y'all are willing to listen. And I think, um, I hope that, uh, you can ask Kathleen, I was really nervous putting all of this together, but I think, um, one thing that I would hope is that, um, you know, in thinking about these things, I hope that you feel, empowered um to be able to like sort of really be able to to make change happen because i think everyone can do that and i think that um, one thing that people will say is that you know i'm just one person like this is an issue like i'm not racist like i didn't do a racist thing or um you know the places where i go aren't racist the people i know aren't racist or you know that's happening in this institution i can't do anything about that um but we all sort of have a, we all have a social circle. We all have um, people that we impact. And I think one of the biggest things that we can do is um, really uh, have the courage to share um, and have the courage to um, own up to these things that we're learning and own up to the places where we need to learn more um, and have the courage to ask those questions. So I say, I'm long-winded, but I say all of that to say, I'm thankful for having the opportunity to share because I think that being able to hear these stories and being able to start saying, I don't know about this, I want to learn, um, is where it all begins.
Thanks, everybody. As always, if you want to hear more about me, what this space is about, you can go to my blog, ichoosegrit.com. Find me on the social medias under I Choose Grit. Um, you can always go back to my very first episode ever, the story of Carrie that kind of dives into why this podcast exists. There's info in the show notes about how to support me during doing this project more long-term, if that's something you would like to do. Thanks, everybody. So excited to share more episodes I have queued up with you over the next few months and hope you have a good week. Take care of yourself. Peace.